Welcome, and may the Lord be with you. We are excited to have you with us today as we listen to this week's sermon from Blue Ridge Anglican Mission in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Let's listen in. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Our epistle reading today is from 1 Corinthians 12, one of the passages in the New Testament about the spiritual gifts or charismata given to the church for its edification. Another passage, Ephesians 4, 7 through 13, speaks of leadership gifts, those, those given to apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service, the epistle tells us. Our reading today, however, speaks of the kind of spiritual gifts given to the whole body of the church for the common good. St. Paul tells us in this passage that no spiritual gift is unimportant and that each gift, whether a lesser one or a greater one, plays a vital role in the church. It seems to me when we, we sometimes tend to associate the charismata mainly with Pentecost and the way God the Holy Spirit functioned in the earliest days of the church. But I want to suggest here that there's a bigger picture. And so I want to say a few words today about how the Holy Spirit has been manifested throughout the whole sweep of redemptive history, from the account of creation, the history of salvation as it is given to us in the books of the Old and New Testaments, and the history of the Catholic Church, which we confess ourselves to be in the Nicene Creed. So here we go on a little trip down memory lane. Our trip begins in the first two verses of the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we see here the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, as the agent of God's creation. These two verses interestingly mirror the prologue of the Gospel of John, where Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is also seen as the agent of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in, with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. The Genesis passage tells us that the Holy Spirit hovered over the primeval darkness and the waters which the ancient Near Eastern mind associated with chaos. Psalm 104 echoes the creation account when it says that by God's Spirit, all living things are created and preserved. The psalmist says, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So the Holy Spirit, as the agent of God the Father, is both our creator and our preserver. So moving from the Old Testament account of creation to the account of redemption that begins in Genesis 3, we are told in the story of Noah and the ark that God's spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. So we see here in the context of, of how God judges a fallen and violent humanity that because of the fall we have this innate tendency to strive with the spirit and he with us. The Bible clearly teaches that fallen man is in an adversarial relationship with God. But thanks be to God, we can thank him for what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. So the next time the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament is in Exodus, in the account of the construction of the tabernacle. This is from chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, 
in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all, all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of the meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstands with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. And finally worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. Now, as an Anglican Christian, I find this passage to be full of relevance because here the Bible tells us that God gives his Holy Spirit to craftsmen and artists for the purpose of creating a holy space fit for the worship of God. What do we find? Artwork, vestments, furnishings, holy utensils, incense. Starting to sound familiar? So as we turn to the historical books of the Old Testament that deal with the conquest of Canaan, the time of the judges and the establishment of the Hebrew monarchy, there are a number of instances where the uh, spirit supernaturally clothes a person or stirs him or rushes upon him to give him ex- an extraordinary power for the specific work to be po- performed or to prophecy. I'm sorry, to prophesy. Judges, warriors, prophets, and kings receive special spiritual anointings to do the special work of God needed at crucial points in the redemptive history of Israel. The Old Testament also tells us that the Holy Spirit inspires prophetic words that were written down and became Holy Scripture. In 2 Samuel 23.2, David says that the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. In Ezekiel 2.2, the prophet says that the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me. And so from this verse and others in the New Testament, we derive our belief that all of Holy Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, or God-breathed, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. And that, that all of Scripture is therefore the very word of God, even when it is the voice of human beings that ring in our ears. The Old Testament also tells us that the Spirit of God inspires holiness in believers. From Psalm 143, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good Spirit lead me on level ground. So it was by the Holy Spirit that the saints under the old dispensation were made holy. But then there's a sort of eschatological shift in the Old Testament, eschatology being a fancy theological word for end times. There is said to be a new and final advent of the Spirit, say the prophets. Isaiah speaks of of the time when the Messiah will come and that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And in referring to this new advent, God tells Ezekiel that he will put his Spirit within his chosen people and cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And it shall come to pass afterward, God says to the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And so ends the story of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So begins the story of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, as he comes to a young, set-apart virgin whom the Catholic Church would call the New Eve to effect the miracle of the Incarnation. This word overshadow here is an interesting one. It will be used again with reference to the bright shining cloud that enveloped Peter, James, and John as they witnessed the miracle of the transfiguration. It harkens back to the word hovered as it is used in Genesis 1 when God through his Holy Spirit brought the creation into existence. You see, when the Holy Spirit hovers or overshadows something, something important is about to happen, like the creation and redemption and empowerment and prophecy. The Holy Spirit caused both Mary and Elizabeth to prophesy when they met each other and marveled at the two miracles of the Holy Spirit that had given them children who would in their unique ways advance God's redemptive plan for our fallen human race. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, would also receive the spirit of prophecy at the naming of his son, as did Simeon and Anna when Christ was brought and presented in the, t- in the temple. At the baptism of Christ, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and rested upon him in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. It was in the baptism of Christ that the church witnessed one of the first and clearest attestations to the being of the Holy Trinity, when after the Spirit rested on our baptized Lord, a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit would then compel Jesus into the wilderness to face temptation from the devil and do everything there for our redemption that Adam and Eve failed to do. Matthew 4.14 tells us that Jesus afterward returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee to begin his public ministry. And when the believing Pharisee Nicodemus requested an audience with our Lord, he was told about how one enters the kingdom of heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above in the Greek, born from, the, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we see here in this passage that baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit are just as clearly linked together as they were at Jesus' own baptism. In chapters 14 through 16 of John's Gospel, we read Jesus' word about how the Holy Spirit would come to the church after he returned to the Father, having procured our redemption in his glorious death, resurrection, and ascension, and who would lead the church into all truth. Mark that one for, for later reference, lead the church into all truth. Then at the end of John's gospel, breathes, I'm sorry, then at the end of John's gospel, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." And receive the Holy Spirit, they did. 
The account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 recounts how, as in the days of old, the Holy Spirit fell upon or rushed upon believers to enlighten and empower them. And just as the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to bring forth the second person of the Trinity in human form, so the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came upon the first few believers, including Mary, to bring forth the continuation of the body of Christ, the church. This is why, the Pentecost, why Pentecost is often called the birthday of the church. And the book of Acts is just chock full of references to how the Holy Spirit guided and empowered the church of the earliest days. One could almost say that as the Gospels are the account of the earthly ministry of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the book of Acts is the account of the earthly ministry of the third person of the Holy Trinity. In the New Testament epistles, and especially the epistles of Paul, we receive further teaching about how the Holy Spirit guides, empowers, and sanctifies the church. Our epistle reading today, which speaks of different kinds of sign gifts given to the church, is one of them. But there are just too many uh, epistle passages to quote in the time we have, but just to reference a few. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. If by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of the redemption. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to you all, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so ends the, the story of the Holy Spirit and the experience of the New Testament church. Well, we all know what happened after that, right? When the days of the first century church were over and they passed into the Catholic age, the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased, the church ran off the rails, doctrinally speaking, and it entered into a millennium and a half dark age requiring a Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and a charismatic renewal in the 19th century to bring it back, uh, back around to the first century faith and order, right? Don't you believe it for one minute? First of all, Christ promised that he himself would never leave or forsake the church and that the Holy Spirit would lead her into all truth. This means, among other things, that it is impossible that the church should ever go off the rails doctrinally. Not that heresies wouldn't arise, but the implied promise is that the church will ultimately vanquish them and it will retain its orthodoxy. One of the ways in which the Holy Spirit would so protect the church is through her church councils. In Acts 15, we read of the Jerusalem Council, the very first council of the church, which took up the issue of a Judaizing heresy that taught that circumcision of males was necessary for salvation. It was a messy affair, but when the smoke had cleared and the issue had been decided, a letter was sent to the churches announcing the result with these words, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. You see, just as the will of the Holy Spirit prevailed through the judgment of church leaders at the Jerusalem Council, so it did at key points in church history when important matters of doctrine had to be settled at church councils, matters of doctrine concerning the triune nature of God, the nature of Christ, the meaning of grace, matters all vital to our salvation. And in the clash between Orthodox Christians and heretical ones, the Holy Spirit led the church through those crises into all truth, enshrining orthodoxy and vanquishing heresy, because that's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's the promise that was given. Secondly, miracles did not cease at the end of the apostolic age. 
The writings of the church fathers and desert fathers throughout two millennia of church history are full of accounts of miraculous events. Just take for starters Augustine's City of God in which he recounts several astounding miracles that were connected with the sacraments of the church and the relics of the saints. Consider as well all the testimonies of the Catholic mystics and monks throughout the history of the church as to the miracles that occurred in their lives. There is simply no question that the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit did not cease when the last apostle died. Thirdly, understand that tradition is not a bad word, not necessarily anyway. And while it is true that Jesus chided the Pharisees for their tra- traditions of men, St. Paul told the Thessalonian church to stand, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. This means that our faith and practice comes not just through the Bible alone. Writing in the 4th century in his book on the Holy Spirit, St. Basil of Caesarea wrote of certain church practices that were founded on Holy Scriptures, but also others that came down as unwritten tradition. We as Anglicans agree with the great Anglican theologian Richard Hooker that some of what we do as a church comes from tradition, and that's okay as long as it doesn't stand in conflict with Scripture. And I think this is why the Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lasky could say that tradition is merely the life of the Holy Spirit in the truth. I'm sorry, life of the Holy Spirit in the church. There is no defensible reason to chafe at that mark because we can all be assured from Holy Scripture that the Holy Spirit has been with us and will always be with us to lead the church into all truth, however messy that process can be at times. And just as the Spirit of God was at work in the craftsmen and artists who filled the tabernacle with symbolic art and beauty and made it fit to be a place of liturgical worship of the Most High God, so did the Holy Spirit in the history of the, of the church. And that's why we as Anglicans, in, cons- in concert with the Catholic tradition, also utilize such things as artwork, vestments, furnishings, holy utensils, and incense in our worship. It's because of the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the Holy Spirit is alive and well in the church. He always has been and he always will be. That being the case, we can not only trust that he led the church into all truth and is still leading the church into all truth today, we can trust that he will give all of us, whether layperson or clergyman, his gifts today in accordance with what we heard today in our reading from 1 Corinthians. Jesus said, What father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a fish, which instead of a fish will give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you don't know what your spiritual gift is or spiritual gifts are, or if you're wondering if God desires to give you additional gifts, just well, just ask him. That's the promise. And then having received your spiritual gifts in accordance with the injunction of St. Peter, as each has received a gift, gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Blue Ridge Anglican Mission. 
We are a parish of the Orthodox Anglican Church that is situated in the beautiful mountains of Hendersonville, North Carolina. If you want to learn more, check us out at blueridgemission.org. Now, let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.